So I have made art that was very conceptual that was about these kind of topics, about a sense of, for example, belonging or or not belonging or a fear. And then sometimes I draw two flamingos playing one cello. Welcome to People Are People, uh, this podcast where we hear the story of amazing persons. This week we are only with Emil and uh, me in Barcelona, and we have one guest as every month, uh, Tamara. Hello, Tamara. Hello. For this episode, we have uh, uh, Noha Muspa to, to give us a, a, an anecdote about Tamara. Uh, so we, we managed to have them both at the same time here in Barcelona. So we just figured that it could be good for you to introduce uh, your friend Tamara. So Tamara, the first time I met Tamara was um, in relation to uh, improv, improvisational theater. And um, you know how sometimes people will wonder, like, what is um, passion? How do you know somebody's passionate about something? And with Tamara and improv theater, you can just you can just feel that energy so strongly, like it's uh, so contagious. You know, like she gets up to do a scene, and you can see the happiness in like every part of her body, of her face, the huge smile, um, and it just spreads to everybody around her. You know, almost like a if a dog has gotten wet and then they're shaking all the water off and you can see all the droplets coming off, that's sort of the the, the passion of uh, Tamara coming off of her and just spreading everywhere. Uh, and I thought that was so beautiful to see that, you know, to see a person just light up like that and spread that light around them. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's the first sort of um, thing I think about when I think of the first time I met Tamara. Thank you. So usually we, Tamara, we start with one very hard to answer question, which is what is important right now for you in your life? Oh, yeah, that is super hard. Yes, I I find myself sort of at a crossroads, I guess, where it feels like I have to make decisions career-wise. Yeah, that's something that's on my mind a lot now. But I think the most important thing, it doesn't matter in what what it is that you do, um, the most important thing is always to be happy. And what, can you name a couple of things that makes you happy? For me, friendship is a big thing. Yeah, let's get deep real, real quick. <laughs> <laughs> There have been periods in my life where I've been very lonely uh, and unsupported. Yeah, in those times, in those periods, you learn that friendship is probably the most important thing there is. Um, of course, you can have a, a great career and and good health and, and whatever. But if you don't have friendships, I think, uh, yeah, that affects a person deeply. Yeah. And for me, it's it's very much to everything I do, activity wise or experiences, they mean much more if I have someone or, or, or more people to share it with. Uh, to go to a movie alone is not that fun because you don't have anyone to talk about the movie straight after uh, so like for me it's the key thing when it comes to having people around and friendships is I have someone to share my experiences with yes I, I cannot even watch movies by myself uh, because I'm quite a restless person so I need people to watch uh, a movie with because otherwise I will not Uh, focus on the movie. I will do 10 other things at the same time. So if there's a movie that I'm particularly interested in, I need to ask someone to watch it with me because I won't be able to watch it by myself. And so you, you started by saying that you had a work decision to take and you went to friendship. So is, it, is this connected? In a way, I think yes, because, well, one of the reasons I quit my previous job is because I was doing it by myself. And, and that was very tough, um, especially when it gets stressful and you cannot share it. And I think I need to get a certain satisfaction out of my work 
And it doesn't have to be full time. Um, but for me, for example, a big part of why I love teaching is because I feel like I give something good to other people, that I have a positive effect on their lives. So in, in that regard, yes. Uh, and I think every interaction I have with, also professionally with people, for me, those connections are very meaningful. Like I care deeply about my students. So to that extent, yes. But career is not the most important thing. Uh, I mean, I want to do something that I really love, but I think the friendships are are more important than the career. You mentioned that you're teaching. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're teaching and what what is your current uh, profession at the moment? Yes, so I am teaching improv theater, mainly in English. Yes, and then um, my other job at the moment is that I also I work as an illustrator. And um, in my ideal world, I could live full-time off of those two things, teaching and performing improv and art. And um, is uh, this work as illustrators that felt a bit lonely? No, that is... Um, I, I used to be uh, head of school at a theater, um, so I did all of the organization of the workshops and the classes and the administration, and that's a very stressful job. Also very rewarding because you see how much it gives to the community, but also very stressful, and I didn't want to continue doing that by myself. So I decided to to quit. But in the art, I can actually be by myself. Um And for some reason, art has always been something that, like what I said before with watching a movie, that I cannot do it by myself. But when I when I draw, I can really disappear in the in the drawing completely and uh, sort of lose myself. in it's almost like meditation, I think. Um, but I don't have that with watching movies, and I just get restless, and mm. I don't like sitting still generally too much unless there are some kind of distraction. But when I'm drawing, I, I don't have that at all. I can, I, I forget the world and I forget to drink and I forget, uh, all of a sudden I watch the clock and I'm like, oh, <laughs> five hours have went by. But do you draw for yourself or do you, do you draw for someone like to share still? Um, I work partly on commission. So for companies uh, that hire me as an illustrator and I also make my own uh, drawings. But yes, it's hard to live of uh, making your own art without any uh, company that uh, that pays you. Because people like art, but people generally don't buy art. So it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to live off. Can you explain a little bit like how is, is there a difference when you uh, have a have to make an illustration for a paid job? or when you have completely free reins uh, and doing something uh, for yourself. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the differences in those two approaches? Yes, um, it really depends on uh, who you're working for and what they want. Uh, because certain assignments, I recently declined something because I didn't feel it and I, I it immediately stressed me out and Uh, as I kept on, I, I, I really felt that I didn't want to do it. And then I talked to another artist um, who told me that you should never compromise and you should only make art that you want to make. Because he said, if you start taking assignments just because you earn money with it and then you end up doing art that you don't actually want to do, then people might continue to hire you for that kind of art. Whereas if you only make the art that you want to do, then you will find companies that want to hire you for the thing that you want to do. So um, that led to me declining a few assignments of things that I really wasn't passionate about. There's this architecture firm that I love working for because he has a pretty clear idea of what he wants, but he's also... Uh, he gives me a lot of freedom too. And he, I think he hired me because I'm not the most trained graphic designer or illustrator. I, I studied fine art and not illustration or graphic design. Uh, but I think he also hired me because of my improv background and because maybe I have a different way of thinking and maybe I think a little bit more in stories. Um, 
in in the hopes that my my work for him would give different kinds of results than what he would have gotten for from a a trained graphic designer for example and within my own work i have so many ideas and they need to come out somehow uh because otherwise i just uh it's it's very frustrating i have a million ideas and i can only do a small portion of it and uh for me it's very satisfying to be able to get some of that those ideas out that you you wouldn't be able to get out if you only work for for companies because yeah it's very unlikely that that's exactly what they want yeah because you you get parameters and and uh you work towards an idea that they have it's, exactly uh, it's you don't have your completely own freedom of what you can do yes and i think it's important uh for me at least personally i don't know if that is the case for any illustrator or artist but for me it's important to keep on doing my own projects too rather than only only work in assignment because i think that also increases the creativity and you make discoveries about uh yourself for me for example i i love experimenting with different styles and so i switch it switch switch up my drawings every now and again and I try something new and um and that's just easier to do via your own projects I think illustration or theater uh the aim is for an audience being the person seeing your illustration or the person just going to your shows how do you connect working very towards yourself knowing more yourself developing to delivering something for an audience that I hope you want to transmit something or to make them maybe like it or react to it. Yes, I, I think you always uh, convey your message or your art form best if you're passionate about your own thing. So if if I am passionate about my art, if I'm passionate about my improv show and what I do, or if I'm passionate about my teaching, then you will find an audience that is passionate about the same thing. Um, so I'm not so much focused on what other people want to see. Of course, that's more the case if you if you are hired as an illustrator or graphic designer, of course, then you need to deliver uh, what they want. Um, but in my own projects, if If I do what I'm passionate about, then those people who who like what you do will find you. And and also, I think when you're doing something that you yourself are passionate about, it transmits in the work, like it shows. Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know exactly how it is with with illustrations, but I know when it comes to theater and and improv that if you are really really passionate about it yourself, the audience will see that in your eyes. It really shines through in in the work that you do. Uh, and it's it's enjoyable to watch, even if maybe the art form itself is not uh, something that that audience member normally would enjoy. Exactly, uh, I I think that's true, and I think it it's maybe more clear on stage because you can actively see people having fun or not having fun. Um, I see that a lot in beginner improv shows where everyone is having so much fun. And then after a while, um, people get certain expectations of themselves and there is a period of time in their development where they're not having fun on stage and then it's less fun to watch. Um, so I think if you're having a lot of fun on stage, that that certainly conveys to the audience too. Uh, and I think within art, it might be less clear, but you can really see artists that are passionate uh, or curious about their own art, I think. But it never happened that... You you did something you were very passionate about, but you just didn't see any reaction. You were the only one passionate about. Oh, that's a good question. Oh, I don't know. Um, but maybe it doesn't matter because if I had a really good time, then maybe that was enough. <laughs> I, I, I know when I was younger, I used to say... Um, people sometimes talk about what is good music and what is bad music. And if there is a musician that makes a song that is liked by one person in the world, then maybe it's a good song because that one person liked that song and maybe that's enough. So, and, and maybe so, and maybe the musician is that one person. <laughs> But that, that's quite beautiful to, to think about art and, and the appreciation of art that way. Uh, the, the show that I'm performing right now uh, 
is a specific style of improv also that it, it's just not everyone's cup of tea. Um, and that's okay. I'm comfortable with that. You, you're from the Netherlands? Yes. But you don't live there right now. Can you tell us a little bit about like where, where you live and how you ended up there? Uh, yes, I live in Stockholm. Uh, that's not Switzerland. That is uh, Sweden. <laughs> um, and uh, I was born in Rotterdam in the Netherlands and then I moved around in the Netherlands a little bit um, I was one of those uh, people who moved away from a big city to move to a smaller city to study uh, no one in that city got why I moved away because everyone uh, there would have chosen to move to a bigger city like Rotterdam, but uh, that was never my thing. Uh, I never really felt at home there. And I, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to live somewhere else. I thought I always thought that would be France uh, because I loved... Uh, we often went to France, uh, to the uh, Pyrenees, to, to go hiking. But then I did an art project in Berlin. It was an art project of five weeks and there were a lot of international art students there and there were a few Swedes there as well and uh, I loved their language so they they taught me a few sentences and then I decided that I wanted to learn Swedish so um, that's when I started watching Swedish movies and series and that's how I got interested in Sweden uh, originally and then I've always known that I wanted to live somewhere where there's more nature because uh That's my way of calming down or um, like if, if you're stressed, that's a big stress relief like, for me. Like uh, disconnecting from what you're currently going through, or just going out in nature and relaxing yes. there. Uh, I, uh, I um, recently got the diagnosis ADHD and I've also read that a lot of people who have ADHD calm down like their their brain calms down when they're in nature so maybe that's what it does for me too that it's just a a moment where all of a sudden my brain turns a little bit more silent which is nice every once in a while <laughs> well, that's interesting I've, i've not heard that before that's that's interesting to think about and it might be different for different people so you mainly move to a smaller city because of nature Also, um, yes, partly. So in Rotterdam, there's a lot of traffic and that stresses me out. Um, growing up, I was always very sensitive to sound and smell, uh, extremely sensitive. I could get ill and um, I could have, I had weird attacks caused by music also. Uh, specific kinds of music could really mess with my brain and I could really disconnect and uh, unfortunately it was the kind of music my sister was listening to so that caused a little bit of conflict at home um, and the kind of music at that point I think it might have changed by now in Rotterdam was that was that kind of music that people listening to like a lot of electronic like boom, 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 boom. Um, So I, I could never really be in the city because people are smoking, which I was very sensitive to. Um, yeah, there's this music, there's the traffic. Uh, I was also very sensitive to how people are feeling. And if you live in a big city, there are a lot of people around, uh, some of which might not feel so well. And I would pick up on all of that. Um, so moving to uh, a city, like a smaller city where there's more space... Um, less traffic, maybe, maybe a different type of uh, um, night culture also, different kinds of music uh, that helped, I think. And those um, sensitivities that you had, how, how have they, they changed uh, over time? Are they, have they like remained the same type of, like, are you still as sensitive for that type of music today as you were when growing up? Or like, have they... Have they developed or changed over time? Yes, uh, I'm definitely less sensitive now than before. Um, and I've even started to appreciate certain types of music that would trigger me before. And I think 
I can also close myself off for certain things more easily. But that, I think that's also just age where when you're younger, you have less of a filter and you take everything in very intensely. And maybe growing up, you learn how to to deal with that in a different way mm-hmm. or to to or maybe it's just your brain trains to actively ignore certain things. But it must be a weird sensation to to appreciate the music that was triggering you on before. Yes, I, I, it was a transition because at some point I started dancing uh, Lindy Hop, which is dance to uh, jazz music. And through that, I started listening to Electro Swing. Um, and that was my uh, first little step into the world of electronic music. And I really appreciate electro swing. And via that, I started appreciating other electronic music more and realizing I can dance on it. And when I can dance on it, I think it's different um, because I think my my brain likes rhythm um, or likes and dislikes rhythm. I think that's it, maybe. So before this monotone rhythm was would trigger me in a negative way, Um, and I think through listening to electro swing and finding my way into electronic music that way and slowly learning to be able to dance on it, I could feel the rhythm more and it's more in my body. So I, I wouldn't put it on at home and, and listen to uh, electro swing, yes, but other, other kind of electro electronic music less. But I, 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 I can appreciate dancing on it. I'm, I'm impressed or, because I'm realizing that as we talk, you, you don't stop um, uh, co- talking about your brain as if you were trying to, to, to uh, I don't know, to, to be together in peace. <laughs> yeah. brain, like, to find an agreement yeah, yeah, with, with your brain. Or like, like, we are better now. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. It does sound like you, you have a, some sort of like long-lasting relationship with your brain. Uh, well, I... I Which we all have. Yeah, I, I mean, practically everyone has a long-lasting relationship with their brain, I guess. But I, I've been thinking about it more actively because of the things that I've been through that force me to actively um, try to work together with my brain and come to some sort of agreement, which is, um, I mean, it's still a process. We, we, we definitely have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> Uh, but it, it's leaning more and more towards love the the, the older I get. But uh, it's definitely been a process. I'm very interested in neurology, so maybe uh, that also makes me think about my own brain in a different way than maybe other people do. Um, and maybe being more aware yeah. when when the brain does things that are unsuspected or maybe just being more aware when you're doing certain things to like check in it was like okay how is how am i reacting to this and i i think that's very healthy no, way it's, it's healthy that. what is surprising to me is that it's kind of almost scientific the way of approaching that i can't connect right now with the want of connecting with people, uh, emotional, uh, what you were describing about friendship that is important in the beginning, where here we are more in the scientific side of uh, describing uh, all that. Oh, yeah, I'm very much of both of those kind of things. I, I, uh, I'm a, a bit of a nerd when it comes to... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I can talk like dry medical uh, neurological language, but I, I am very interested in neurology. Um, but that is about human connection, I think, because we are our brains. So um, I have a lot of different friends with uh, different diagnoses or different ways of thinking or, or different ways of dealing with their emotions. And I think that's super interesting. So I think the brain is actually all about human connection because the brain is the human. No, no, uh, I, I totally agree with that. It's more that science have really hard time, as I know, explaining most of what is very simple for humans about emotion transmission and everything. It's, uh, it's, it's a weird combination because um, studying the brain is, is very scientific, but then the results of the functions of the brain are very human. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a neurologist, Oliver Sacks, that um, 
that is great at seeing the patient behind the because he's a he's a he's a doctor so he is a scientist he uh he approaches the but he approaches the patients in both ways both mm. um with his medical background and seeing them as a a person he had a very human approach mm. so rather than um he i think i mean i've never met him in person but what i've seen of him and read of him he had a very personal connection with his patients um so, and one story that moved me a lot which uh uh actually uh turned out to be a little bit closer to home than I I thought it would is a patient who has Tourette's and he yes huh yes so I have Tourette's <laughs> and it comes out when I talk about it so <laughs> uh it might be a little bit harder to hold my tics in um but he um he really wanted to get to know this person so this is someone who loved to play the drums for example and he was really good at that too because his Tourette's made him very spontaneous and do unexpected things and he would end up in in very interesting improvisations uh, when he was drumming and um and then he prescribed him medication that didn't allow him to to play the drums the same way anymore um and and they kept in touch and um for years he was on this medication uh but there was something missing uh and it was good that his tics were reduced on the medication and he could have a normal job and a normal life and he wasn't in pain all the time and tired and but then he couldn't play the drums and he he wasn't as good at at, at ping pong and he was too slow and um and so Oliver Sex is very much a person who tries to find out what someone is beyond the diagnosis and see how he can help the patient as good as possible within what they need um so they both came to the conclusion that uh he would only take his medication monday to friday so he could work and in the weekends he could play the drums and and uh ping pong and and then all his tics would come out uh but then he could uh um really focus on his passions. No, and I think that's super important to like in uh, we we touched on it Hi. before when it comes to like diagnosis and, and especially when we're talking about like the brain and and these uh diagnoses that are now uh very common but like it's we're still very early on in uh in research about how the brain works and how how we as humans still work like there's still so much to explore there so i think it's very important to to take in the both aspects of of not just the the scientific side of it but also the the human part what the human behind like beyond uh, behind the the diagnosis what what kind of person is that and what does that person like to do because i think they are very in, interlocked and uh, with mm-hmm. the the uh, the quirks or or things that comes with the diagnosis exactly uh i i i get the question a lot uh if i take medication or not and i did try a medication for a while and uh I noticed that on the medication I was slow which I don't know if that is how people normally are and if it's just something I'm not used to uh, <laughs> or or that the medication um, makes it into more of an extreme or that I believe maybe uh people who who are not on medication can sort of are more flexible on where to go depending on what the situation asks for whether uh yeah so that the brain can be a little bit more slow but when needed they can speed it up i don't know if that makes any sense but if you're on a medication um there's no choice yeah. and uh so i quit the medication because i couldn't improvise on it for example because i noticed i was too slow um and uh and and it made me feel down so i prefer having the tics and having to deal with that and and improvising and uh potentially every once in a while uh being tired of my brain <laughs> uh but then i go camping so. yeah they go out in nature and, yes. and relax uh, uh, uh so 
you're saying that you uh, you tried medication and it made you slow. What? How do you do you deal with with? Do you, have you like learned to to uh, kind of like accept it? I read uh, somewhere um, many years ago that like uh, there was this guy in England with Tourette's, and he like he when he started being able to live with it was when he accepted uh, that they were part of him instead of like trying to push them away. Like, do you have a similar process, or how how have you? Look, or how do you deal with it uh, and in your day, day-to-day life? Yes, this is actually interesting because I feel like my uh, personal approach and opinion is pretty controversial in the in the world of Tourette's uh, <laughs> because I think a lot of Tourette's patients have heard so often that they should just hold their tics back um, until uh, they're home or for example, in school, because they're disruptive. So there's a very negative thing about telling people that they should hold their ticks in. Um, and there are a lot of Tourette's patients who say that it makes their ticks worse. Um, if you hold in your ticks all day long and then you get home and and you let them go, they can really go bananas and explode and... Um, And maybe even become, yeah, more severe and also more numerous. Um, but for me personally, I did uh, therapy for a couple of months where I learned how to hold in my tics as much as possible or to make them smaller. Um, and for me in the long run, that has actually led to less or to fewer tics. Um, because... And I, I want to I want to say that I don't think it's like that for every Tourette patient because there are so many Tourette patients who say that their tics get worse and that they've tried this uh, method for a longer time and that it only gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, but for me, uh, it did work out well. Um, and there are moments where I also have to decide to let my tics out because um, because it would get worse if I hold them back. But in general, it has worked well for me to uh, to hold them in. Because the, the way it works is that uh, if you can feel... Wanting to take is almost like having to sneeze. Mm. And it's, it feels really nice when you then sneeze. It, it's really annoying when you want to sneeze and, and it, it doesn't come. <laughs> so a, a tick is a little bit like that. Um, So then when you let the tick out, it's actually a reward because that moment is a moment of relief. Um, but then you also get the signal that that was nice. So your your brain starts telling you, like, I want to do that again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so because of that, they can get worse because you get a reward and then your brain um, believes that uh, that's a good thing to do. So for me, reducing the amount of ticks actually helped, or like holding back my ticks reduced the amount of ticks in the long run. Hi. That's that's quite cool because I, I <clears throat> uh, when you're talking about it in that way, it suddenly becomes clear to me because uh, everyone is individual is its own individual and very they're very different and what kind of treatments or things that that uh, makes you relax or in any form it doesn't have to be uh, with a diagnosis it can just be a simple thing as as how you re- uh, de-stress as we talked about like going out in in the nature uh, and that people have different things that they use for that like they uh, some people relax when they're by themselves in nature some other people relax more in groups and from like a social perspective i'm more like that i i get stressed out when i'm on my own uh, i have to keep doing things and so like i when i have uh, in a social uh, uh, situation uh, it doesn't have to be that i'm talking to someone all the time but like just having another person in the room makes me relax more than if I was alone. So everyone is so different. And and I think it's the same with with diagnoses uh, such as Tourette's, that you you need to find your own approach to like what works for you, because everyone is so different that uh, there's different things that that work. Yes. Um, 
let me just be clear about one thing. I, I'm I'm never camping by myself. I should try. <laughs> I should I should try. I'm also very much a social person, so I love having people around. Um, but I love having those people around too when I'm camping. Uh, I should actually try that sometime, but uh, I'm not I'm not super good at being alone either. <laughs> No, Unless I draw, then it's, it's then okay. It's I'm the one that is going to cinema alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just using it as as a metaphor to like to, to draw, draw the parallels between uh, uh, because the the approach uh, of like medical things because I think like the these sort of diagnoses that are uh, behavioral more than uh, like a physical illness those are are more. Depending, they are depending on who you are as a person and what you get out of it. Yes. So the way to treat them needs to be linked with who you are as a person. You need to find a way to to find a balance for you to in order to sort of treat them, cure them, live with them. Exactly, uh, and I think that's, for example, what made Oliver Sacks such an amazing uh, neurologist because he did treat everyone uh, as as one person instead of one diagnosis. So. He also describes in his book that one medication might be in general um, beneficial to treat a certain disease, but not in all cases. And it cannot be the only solution because um, I think in a lot of cases, a treatment is more than just giving pills because it's also about understanding this person. Getting back to that story with Uh, with this patient who in the end decided to take his medication only Monday to Friday, Um, he was first put on medication and was miserable because he didn't know who he was without the ticks because he was ticking nonstop. Um, And um, he he came back after a week with a broken nose. (laughs) Because, uh, Because of the medication, he was too slow, but he had a... He had a thing for wanting to um, to avoid fast objects uh, coming towards him. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that is something that, yeah, Tourette's patients can be attracted, not all of them, but can be attracted to um, danger, for example. So he had a thing for there's something moving towards me really fast and I'm only going to avoid it last in the last second. And he was really good at that because his Tourette's also made him really fast. Uh, but on the medication, he was uh, a lot slower. So that's how he ended up with a broken nose uh, because he ended up bumping into, um, uh, what's it called? A sliding door? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes. Does that happen to people without medication? Too? <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> Um, or like, I mean, those rotating yeah, doors. Yeah, yeah this, like is that called the revol- door? Uh, revolving door? Revolving door. That's yes. it. Yes, I think that's the word. Yeah. Um, um, it is <laughs> <laughs> we, we're all non-native non English speakers here. So, so. The, what they did is they first took a few months to talk about what his life could look like without ticks. So he took him off the medication to first imagine a life without ticks, so he could slowly. Uh, mentally start preparing himself for that and accepting it and and understanding that or uh, think about what life could give him without the ticks and only then when he knew what he could get out of life positive things he could get out of life without his ticks only then he was ready to take his medication and um and be okay with being without ticks um I, i'm not sure i understood well You discovered uh, Oliver Sacks and then you discovered that you had Tourette's uh, syndrome? Yes, so th- this is not very common, but I got Tourette's only three years ago. Oh. Actually, now that I uh, come to think of it, it might be my anniversary because it was, I think it started in November and it's uh, it's November now, so, but I, there's no... But you discover one day from another because... At first, you can do some weird movements, and you don't call it ticks yet, I imagine. Um, they they started suddenly, but I always had a lot of things in common with Tourette's already, and I think that's maybe why I was always fascinated by uh, Tourette's. Also, um, that's the this story of this particular patient. Uh, the first time I read that, it was very emotional 
for me. And I've even seen a theater play based on that story that made me, me and my mom uh, cry. We couldn't leave the theater and we had to talk to the, um, yeah, to the woman who wrote the script. Uh, she, she came and met us in the audience to talk about, uh, about the show and to, um, because we were too emotional. <laughs> we couldn't leave. Um, so that was a beautiful experience, but I didn't have to rest then, but I recognized so much already because I think maybe it's always been in my system already. Um, and the thing with Tourette's is, is that it's a very complicated disease and it goes beyond only having vocal tics and, and motor tics, so uh, sounds and movements, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, be- there are a lot of comorbids, uh, and comor- comorbids are uh, diagnoses that often go along with another diagnosis. Um, so those are ADHD, for example, uh, which I have, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I also have, uh, autism, anxiety, for example, uh, sens- sensory, um, sensitivity. I'm, I'm not super, uh, no. 100% sure, but no. people who are oversensitive basically yeah. Yeah. To, to certain things, and to certain things, which I also could very much relate to, uh, even though I don't think it's, it's, necessarily a, a, a diagnosis I have, but I, I do recognize a lot in that. Yeah, that was a bit what I was thinking about is like for ADHD, I know that it's something that sometimes can be criticized a lot, particularly in countries where they are tracking if the child very early on have ADHD or not, about what does it change to have a diagnosis that say you are that or you are not that? Because I mean, for some syndrome, maybe like Tourette's, yeah, you, you know that there is an identified thing. For HDHC, there are so many levels that there is kind of a smooth transition between not having it and having it. And you can be in between and the diagnosis can change everything from one day to another. No, you are you have this level, you have ADHD. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much a person who is very connected to my emotions, but who is also very, very analytic. Um, and had to be also in order to overcome a lot of things. So for me, having a diagnosis helps a lot because then I can read about it and I can actively uh, try to find information. And um, in a lot of things that I had to deal with, I had to learn by myself because the research wasn't advanced enough to to have the answers um, and I, I was basically born with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, a lot of people only develop that when they're a teenager, but I, I, I've done it since I was, um, since before I can remember. Uh, and I, my, my parents told me that I've always done that. Um, but at that time, the research wasn't advanced enough. Um, so no one knew really how to deal with it. So I had to do the research myself. So, I started reading a lot about psychology and neurology in order to find answers. And but I've I've always been very comfortable with that and I've I've I have made a lot of progress by myself by doing the research. So for me the diagnosis actually helps to start understanding it better and to see what the options are of things I can do to make positive changes. But then I also have family members um, with diagnoses who really don't care about the diagnosis, and I, and I. So I think that's also different per person. Um, they never talk about it. Um, they, yeah, they don't care about it because they, um, they see themselves as just themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine too. And it, so I think it's all about finding a way for yourself to deal with it. Yeah, exactly what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, earlier on, you, you were talking about like how friendships are important to you. Uh, how have like that, that part uh, been help or support? Like how have you uh, used friends in, in this sort of uh, journey of researching yourself, finding out yourself uh, what, what, Uh, what happens uh, and like with the takes and all the development can you just talk a little bit about how that is intertwined yes 
So I've I've been through some very hard uh, times in my life, and I've both both experienced a lack of support, a severe lack of support, and um, at other times, uh, very much support from my friends, and and it changes everything. Um, so there, I have post traumatic stress syndrome also. Uh, <laughs> Yes, it doesn't stop. Um, and obviously that is, it's a very intense thing to deal with. And um, it's also not only for myself, but also for people around me. Um, and before I just didn't have the friends that knew how to deal with it. And maybe also I didn't know how to deal with it in relationships. So because you... Of course, your friends also need to protect protect themselves. Um, so I think I have both learned how to deal with it in a better way to not to protect, not to protect my friends because I think that's their their own job to do, but to not put too much on them. Uh, and I think I've also found people who really wanted to help me. Um, so in those times where I wasn't, I was all alone, th that was maybe even more than a post-traumatic stress syndrome. That was maybe the hardest thing to deal with, that it felt like I have no one. And that took years for me to be able to open up again and let people in. And um, because if I get close to someone, then they might hurt me. Uh, so that took years before I could really let people in again and start making real friendships. Um, but that's what I did in Stockholm. I really found people who have been there for me. And uh, it's because of them that I've made so much progress in my post-traumatic stress syndrome as I have. Uh, knowing that I could always call, that they're always there for me, uh, that they won't leave me because it takes, because post-traumatic stress syndrome takes a very long time to process. So you need to have friends around you who understand that and who don't uh, after after half a year go like, okay, aren't you over it yet? Or or maybe after even after three years, uh, aren't you over it yet? So, but just the feeling of feeling safe, knowing that there's always someone there you can call, takes away so much of the anxiety that comes with post-traumatic stress syndrome, and that's what I needed to start processing it. Maybe to, to go back to the very beginning, because at the very beginning, you, tell, you told you were a teacher in improv. <laughs> it would be easier for me. And, um, and that you also play and do improv. How do, like, we talked about a lot of things about being a nerd in science and neuroscience that is connected to have all these lists of uh, diagnostics. How does this affect your creation and your creativity and what you bring to others uh, towards your, your art, basically? Yes, as a teacher, I think, uh, having been through so much myself, um, I think I have a different way of connecting with my students because a lot of people sign up for improv for various reasons. And there are people who sign up for improv because they have social anxiety or because they're depressed or because they're looking for friendships uh, because they feel lonely um, or just because they want to do something fun. <laughs> so um, I understand, uh, I think I understand my students at a different level because I have those experiences myself. Um, and it also makes that um, it's very important for me that these students have this sense of relief or the sense of belonging or so it affects also the way I teach I think and it makes it more rewarding because I, I know how much it can mean uh, because improv meant a lot to me also uh, going through a lot of difficult things uh, because I also needed that relief in order to to be able to deal with it in my art if I perform I think uh, because I've always been very interested in psychology and I always had to analyze myself that I, I love watching shows where characters have sincere feelings and wishes and, and uh, maybe even philosophies. It's, it's all about the character for me. Um, and I think that connects really uh, well to my interest in, in neurology and psychology also. And is it something similar towards the, the illustrations and the, that part? 
Sometimes, yes. I, I can make, uh, sometimes I make, I think more so in my fine art than in my illustrations. So I have made art that was very conceptual, that was about these kind of topics, about a sense of, um, for example, belonging or uh, or not belonging or a fear. And then sometimes I draw two flamingos playing one cello. <laughs> so it... Uh, it uh, depends. We used to do at the end of each episode, but of course we forgot to tell you uh, that, to, to ask if you have a quote that uh, you like, a motto or something that you want to share. Oh. And if not, I will find a quote from Oliver Sacks because I love Oliver Sacks. So. <laughs> oh, and Oliver Sacks has uh, so many great quotes. He's probably one of the smartest human beings ever to have walked this earth. I have a, a, a favorite word in Dutch, desalniettemin, uh, and it translates in English to, I like it in Dutch better, but in English it translates to nevertheless. And um, you cannot use this word if there isn't something positive in, in the sentence too. So um, despite, despite um, maybe certain situations being very hard, Um, I think you always uh, can get something positive out of it. So that's something I've been holding on to. Like, okay, yes, uh, certain things are really difficult, but I'm, I'm going to learn from them and and uh, grow as a human being. And can you please repeat that word? Desolnitamin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, it was nice uh, being here. <laughs>